when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord Jesus. Stately, plump, but mulligan. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Hello and welcome to the very first Bloomcast, recorded in our reading library just above Shakespeare and Company at Kilometre Zero in Paris. I'm Adam Biles, literary director here at the bookshop, and joining me for these ten episodes are two morally, stately and intellectually plump <laughs> copains de route, Lex Paulson and Alice McCrum. Lex, Alice, welcome. Hello. Hello, hello. <laughs> now, Lex, if our listeners have spent a Bloomsday at the bookstore in the last few years, they'll likely know you as our irrepressible Bloomsday MC. Um, you may well have even dragged them to the lectern, thrust an extract of dense, unpunctuated monologue into their hand and incited them to read. But can you tell us a little bit about yourself before your quest to initiate the general population into the myriad wonders of this book? Um, so a fact um, that maybe explains lots of other facts about my life is that um, I'm the son of two parents who were uh, at university in the late 1960s. And what did that mean? It meant that I, I grew up feeling... Like I'd missed all the fun. Uh, like there were all of these wonderful mysteries uh, that I'd yet to be initiated into and that I might never understand. And uh, my life centered around, you know, books and politics and the Beatles. And one book that was put into my hands on my 18th birthday um, by one of these hippie friends of my parents, um, my Aunt Janice Goldblum, uh, was Ulysses. And she inscribed it to me uh, with a, a mystical somewhat whimsical note to the effect that you you might not uh, get through this now, but but you will. Um, and uh, and she knew that I would love it. So that was when I was 18. Um, and then I had um, the chance to uh, be taught uh, in an English class my freshman year at Yale, um, English 129. Um, it was a class of epics. And we started with the Odyssey and uh, uh, Don Quixote and the Inferno Middlemarch and finished with, with Ulysses. And uh, I remember by the end of that semester reading the soliloquy. Uh, I didn't read the whole thing every, every page, but I read um, uh, the soliloquy of, of, of Molly Bloom. And I felt like the end of it that my sort of the, the, the top of my head was on fire, you know, and um, and it was sort of it sort of got me from there. And uh, 1904 plus 100 years uh, was in Dublin on Eccles Street at 8 a.m. Uh, with about 80 or so other Ulysses enthusiasts. And uh, and that was a whole story in itself. And then uh, moving here about 10 years ago, we started these Bloomsday uh, celebrations. And uh, and it's it's uh, it's a holiday open to all. So, yes, I would say that, that that was how I've kind of encountered the book. And this this is my third time reading it and certainly the best and most enjoyable. And have you written to your aunt Janice to, to thank her? For Just yesterday, in fact, due to the due to this, this the magic of social media, um, it's when a, I it's almost a prophecy. It's almost a prophecy <laughs> come true, fulfilled, fulfilled, um, fulfilled. And uh, Janice, if you're listening right now, merci. She's also one of the first to speak French to me uh, as a child. We should get Jan Janice if you're listening. <laughs> um, uh, so, so yeah. So that, uh, this is uh, this is the fulfillment in a way. I've been looking as J James Joyce apparently said this to to Frank Budgeon. 
uh, one of his close friends who wrote a great book uh, about Ulysses, when Budgen asked him how long he'd been writing Ulysses, Joyce said, um, well, five years, but uh, more generally my whole life. Mm, and uh, mm. so that's, I sort of feel about this, about this podcast. Mm, it's been mm. a little, little while coming, but in a sense, I've been preparing for this mm. <laughs> for a very long and time. And I think with that Frank Budgen quote, quote, you've just given our listeners a little bit of an insight into the role you are going to play for us in this podcast as our kind of, almost our Stephen Bloom, the, um, the over-educated geek. Geek. Geek is the word. <laughs> Geek is the word. Part Stephen, part Bloom. Yeah, no, I think uh, enthusiast, evangelist, um, both two good Greek words that Buck Mulligan might shout out. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm here to sprinkle all kinds of Joycean geekery on our on our listeners in a loving and, and, and hopefully, uh, hopefully uh, attracting way. Mm-hmm. Or to put it another way, Lex has done the reading, so I don't have to. <laughs> um, and Alice, you're the head of programming at the American Library in Paris. Mm. Um, you're also, for the purposes of this podcast, something of a guinea pig. Um, <laughs> for like a contestant on a reality TV show that would probably be cancelled before the first ad break of the pilot episode, you have boldly agreed to read and respond to Ulysses mm. for the first time in real time, mm. almost, under the attentive ears of our podcast audience. Um, but before our listeners start reporting us to the relevant authorities for a particularly delicious act of cruelty, can you <laughs> reassure them that it's not your first contact with world-expanding Irish literature or James Joyce, for that matter? Right. Um, it's a pleasure to be here because, in some ways, I feel like I have a Ulysses-shaped hole uh, in my in my kind of literature background, if you like, um, I studied literature at university and, and like Lex, took a kind of course of great books, uh, the canon, the Western canon, literature and philosophy. And, and Ulysses, surprisingly, weirdly, I think, was not on that list. Um, you know, I think you come up against this book in the same way you come up against the Aeneid, Beowulf, the Mahabharata. You know, it, it just appears. Um, and even as I studied Irish literature, I, I took, actually took a course on Irish literature um, the spring of my sophomore year and read everything, much more obscure works. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not hardly obscure, but there are moments of it that are very obscure. And um, reading everyone from Lady Gregory to J.M. Singh to, to the poetry of Yeats, Flann O'Brien, that's from Two Birds. Um, mm. Great book. It is. And I think, um, and, and so I had the kind of all of the background. I've read Dubliners uh, in that course. I read Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man in High School. Um, and then I will go on to say this later, but um, I then studied Beckett mm-hmm. in, in a real way. And um, and all of that is to say in the middle of that is is is, is Ulysses, which which I hadn't read. And I have read The Odyssey. And then I've also read um, last year Omaros by Derek mm-hmm. Walcott. So yeah, yeah, yeah. many meditations on, on The Odyssey, but not this one. Was there any explanation given on that course as to why Ulysses <laughs> <laughs> wasn't included? It seems... Something this of an oversight. I, I agree. Um, I think that the heavy lifter of the second semester was crime and punishment, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they didn't want to burden poor first first year students too much. And we had we had already done you know Iliad, Odyssey, Paradise Lost in the first semester, and I think mm. it was just too much. Mm-hmm. And, and we 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 did to the lighthouse. So it was a kind of stand in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. It, just to say that. Um, these these quote unquote great books, you know, capital B, capital G, um, they can change your life. Mm-hmm. You know, if 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 read in the right time, if um, taught possibly by the right person, if uh, discussed by the right people. Hello, dear listeners, um, they can move you and stay yeah. with you forever. But that's also a really good point because the flip side of that is if they're 
met at the wrong time right. and under the wrong conditions right. and with the wrong teacher, Perfect. then exactly. you can be turned off them exactly. for for life. Exactly, fact, exactly. Such a shame. Yeah, no, I think that that's that's that is a great point, and so so let's hope to not do that. Well, that's, that's <laughs> that seems like a perfect segue, in fact, into sort of talking a bit, little bit about what we intend to do with mm. this Bloomcast, and I mm. think, in part, um, it's probably something that we will discover along with our listeners. Um, you know, we've we've got together with this idea of accompanying the the big uh, Friends of Shakespeare and Company read Ulysses these hundred or so episodes of the book read by by different people, by writers, by actors, by musicians, by publishers, uh, by former staff members of the shop, by by friends. Um, and I mean, that, this would be great just for people to listen to. But I know that in my previous readings of Ulysses and in my current rereading of Ulysses, mm. it felt good to have some sort of accompaniment. Now, mm. whether that was accompaniment of uh, a guide, like a, a, a book, which we'll come on to mm. talk about some of the guides that we'll be referring to in these mm. podcasts, mm. or whether that's with the accompaniment of a friend or mm. a group of friends mm. who are reading it at the same time. Mm. Um, a, a support system. A support system, <laughs> exactly. And, I, and I'm very conscious. I don't want people to think, I mean, we've, we've used the word burden and we've used the word support system. <laughs> and I don't want people to think that uh, we're sort of preparing them for a an onerous experience uh, because but quite the opposite. But um but it is, I think, uh, a challenging experience. And mm. I think it's definitely worth uh, acknowledging that at the start. Mm. But I, I, I guess, I mean, I suppose I hope that these Bloomcasts land somewhere between a book club and a primer. So mm. something that will kind of accompany our listeners uh, listening to Ulysses over the next few months, but also a place where they can come to prepare themselves, mm. to compare their notes to our notes, mm. um, to find solace in shared struggles, particularly as mm. we get to some of the more... Um, esoteric but, esoteric thank you so I was, I was, I was, esoteric I was, esoteric <laughs> I was groping for a, a non um, derogatory word and esoteric works, works perfectly um, and also you know there's a lot of trivia a lot of really amusing mm. stuff about the composition of Ulysses about the way it can be read about some of the little things that Joyce dropped in there which will you know, which thankfully, a hundred years of scholarship has allowed us to um, mm. to, to to discover and to, and has has been revealed. So um, that's kind of what I'm hoping for from these um, from these podcasts. Uh, I would say, as as the kind of long time listener, first time caller <laughs> of of Ulysses, <laughs> that's how I'm thinking of myself about this. Uh, as uh, if there are fellow people who are kind of struggling with their first time of Ulysses, you're welcome to write to all of us and, mm. and maybe we can somehow fold in your thoughts or mm. your um, points as, as we as we uh, move forward. And I'm happy to to deal with deal with your concerns and, and bring them in. Yeah. And I can represent in some ways the, the, the first... populi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, we'll, I... we'll, we'll get a red phone set up. You could be manning the switchboards. <laughs> and, uh... Yeah, we have somebody who's drowning on page 64. <laughs> Eden, um... Edenville, alpha, alpha one. Yeah. But, okay, so no, that's a great idea. So what we'll do, we'll put an email address in the show notes of this podcast. So anybody listening, if you want to get in touch with, well, Alice Lex, what, what kind of thing do you want to hear from our listeners? I, I mean, one of the things we're going to come to is 
this is a capacious novel. Everyone has their Ulysses, and we want to know what is your Ulysses. We want to know what are the parts that you loved, what are the parts that you scratched your head, um, what would you love to mm. uh, hear us talk mm-hmm, about. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, you know, next to us a mountain of these wonderful companion books that we can look things up if you mm. want to know what does that Latin or French thing mean. Mm. Um, we're happy to do that. So, mm. and what else? What do you think? <laughs> I think in the in the spirit of hashtag my Ulysses. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, for me, the way I'm thinking about this, particularly because it's my first time, is how is my experience of reading this text holding up a mirror to our moment? And that's really my part of my role um, uh, on this podcast is is representing um, the kind of contemporary uh, gaze at it, if you like. So maybe Would that be the, the youth spelt Y-O-F? <laughs> <laughs> Or maybe even the Ute with no H. Oh God! <laughs> I dated myself You've even dated with you. the spelling of Ute. <laughs> I, I shouldn't bother. Continue, please, Alice. <laughs> All my apologies. Can you can you get back in your wheelchair and <laughs> go, go have your tea? Gosh. Um, no, which is all which is all to say, you know, uh, maybe you're reading a page and this character or this moment reminds you of a politician um, who we're reading about the news or some kind of. Um, quirk about technology or uh, some current phrase that's going viral on the internet. So that that's what I would like to hear. How How is this book somehow resonating? Because all great books do, and this is why great books are so enduring. How is it holding up a mirror to the world in which we live now? Yeah, and maybe actually this is possibly stretching it a bit far, but you just made me think, because of all the stylistic innovations mm. in Ulysses, you know, we're living in a time in which sort of textual communication has evolved and is evolving mm. so rapidly and I just wonder if there's some sort of reflection to be to be made between, you know, the sort of the, the ways that Joyce expanded and twisted the way that written the written word is used and the way the the Internet, social media, the different ways we're communicating are doing that. No, I think Ulysses was was the, the proto hypertext. I mean, it, it's it's a, it's a, it's it's crammed full of references and passages and uh, you know alleyways that can take you into other books that takes you into Dante that takes you into Shakespeare that takes you into you know Irish um, nationalist uh, debate it, it's uh, it's an incredibly um, networked uh, novel and in a way that that no other novel was like this before and I think um, I think uh, there's so much about our modern world of fragmented thinking and the kind of rush of information that a hundred years ago uh, Joyce um, really anticipated in a in a in a kind of a uh, prophetic way. This is a point that um, Declan Kibbard, who Lex is a huge fan of, I'm a huge fan of, makes in his introduction to the Penguin Books edition. I'd highly recommend this edition, really recommend the introduction. So on this point, Adam, precisely um, Joyce writing this in some ways to um, create space for all of the technological innovations that are going on in the early 20th century. So um, Kibbard writes, Those meditations address a central problem of modern writing, the breakdown of the old equation between the structure of a language and the structure of a known world. In simple terms, the zones of scientific and te- technical knowledge had expanded massively in the modern period, while the resources of language seemed to lag behind. Such developments as the analytic exploration of the conscious and unconscious had been confronted only belatedly by the makers of literature. And Joyce was one of the first to face the challenge. Wow. Okay, that's a 
perfectly eloquent uh, expression of a half-formed thought that I just threw out there. That's a, it's always... Ulysses is the novel of half-formed <laughs> thoughts, Adam, so you're, we're, you're getting us well on our way. Anyway, with, with all of that in mind, um, I guess it's maybe appropriate before we caper towards the opening chapters of Ulysses, like Buck Mulligan towards 40 Foot Hole, we should perhaps respond to that question as you posed it, Lex. What is your Ulysses. So, Alice, perhaps mm-hmm. let's let's begin with you. What is your Ulysses? My Ulysses, dear Adam, is a precursor to Samuel Beckett. Um, I spent uh, much of my university years, in fact, the last two, thinking about reading all of, and I don't say that lightly, all of Samuel Beckett's <laughs> literature, um, thinking about his theories about narrative, about historical narrative uh, for my senior thesis. Um, and Beckett, of course, many of you might know or might not know, it worked very closely with Joyce. He's not, uh, many people say it was his secretary. He was not his secretary in a kind of conventional sense. Um, Joyce was part of the reason Samuel Beckett came to Paris. Mm. Um, and while Joyce was, was working on Finnegan's Wake, Beckett was essentially helping out with the occasional dictation. He also, during that time, had an on-again off-again relationship, I'm sure he probably wouldn't have described it in those terms, <laughs> <laughs> with um, Joyce's uh, daughter, Lucia. Uh, it's all quite mysterious, but they were very, very uh, close. And we can what we can say for sure is that Joyce loomed very large in Beckett's personal life, professional life, um, and that Beckett wrote much of his early literature uh, as a kind of response to, mm. and very much under the influence um of Joyce. And so for me, how I'm how I'm thinking about this is I know what comes next, right? I know uh, where Beckett takes the kind of stakes and the project that Joyce has set up in the first half of the century. So I was saying to Adam and Lex the other day, I, I think of it kind of visually as <laughs> Joyce throwing up a ball, you know, whether you're in America, a baseball or a tennis ball um, and into the air. And then right after the Second World War, Beckett kind of whacks it out of the stadium, if you like. So um, that's that's really my relationship to Ulysses. Where does it go in terms of Beckett? And then where does where does it go after that? Mm-hmm. And Adam, what is your relationship to Ulysses? OK, I'm slightly worried now because, <laughs> um, you know, it is a uh, professional necessity when you um, work at Shakespeare and Company to... Um, to, to, <laughs> to express a kind of a, an undying love, admiration and uh, need for Joyce in, um, in your life. Is it like the, like the Pledge of Allegiance? You have to say it every morning? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, we, have to, we have to read the entirety of... To the, the uh, portrait of Sylvia Beach and the Shakespeare yeah, Company yeah, yeah. Flight. We have to read the entirety of Oxen of the Sun. <laughs> exactly. From no, exactly. At, any, at any given time, one, one employee of Shakespeare Company has to be reading Ulysses, otherwise the world will stop turning yeah. Yeah, on exactly. the axis. It's the ravens at the tower. Um, <laughs> But, but in all seriousness, I approached Ulysses until very recently, until the beginning of this project, with a certain amount of scepticism. So I'd read it when I was at university in my 20s, doing what I think, when my well, late teens, early 20s, doing what I think a lot of people do when they're at university is reading all of the books that they're not supposed to read. So I was studying philosophy and politics, so I had so I was set some wonderful stuff to read, but, you know, from... I don't know, uh, Thomas More to John Rawls to uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein. And for some reason, at that point, I got completely obsessed with the fact that my um, literary culture was lacking. And there was this whole parade of great books that I hadn't read. So within the space of about six months, um, I read 
the whole of Proust um, in English. Uh, I read uh, Crime and Punishment, Brothers Karamazov and, uh, and um, Demons or the Devils as it mm. from Dostoevsky. And I read Ulysses. Um, I also read Cervantes and uh, Don Quixote and I read Moby Dick and I read Tristram Shandy. Mm-mm. And... All the big boys. All the, yeah, all the, all the big... And yeah, like actually with a certain... I confess with a certain guilt, mostly boys at mm. this point, actually. Mm. Mm. But um, unlike Moby Dick, which got inside me and completely transformed my life, mm. and unlike Tristram Shandy, which unpicked the sense of what the novel could do for me at that time, Ulysses, I found myself admiring it immensely, but having very little emotional connection. What with did it. what did you admire? I admired the the innovation. I admired mm. the linguistic um, and stylistic trickery. It felt a little mm. bit, but I did feel that that kind of, in some way, separated me from uh, the characters, separated me from the experience. Mm. Um, I was. I had read Portrait of the Artist and been completely taken, as I think a lot of young artists and young writers are, by this figure of Stephen Daedalus and just being uh, finding so much of what I had felt expressed so perfectly uh, on the page. And I think I was expecting to have a similar kind of communion with Ulysses, and I didn't have it. Um, And so as the years went by, I always resolved that I should reread it and I would reread it. Um, but I never did. And, it, and when I started work here, um, obviously you're, you know, what, at least once a year with Bloomsday, you're swept into this kind of Joyce maelstrom. And mm. from that point onwards, so for the last six years, it's almost been a novel in fragments. It's been the sort mm. of the, the greatest hits of various episodes mm. p- picked out, read wonderfully, um, but never really considered as mm. a whole. Mm. Yep. Um, so when the centenary came about, I just suddenly thought, OK, yep. I, you know, I, I will have to reread it Mm. I want to reread it so come on let's do it and so I'm now in my second reread Mm. of it because I I reread it in preparation for the um, for this big Ulysses project and now I'm rereading it as I edit the readings of our contributors as they come in and the first rereading already transformed it for me I don't know if it's because I'm older I mean as I say I identified a bit with Stephen in the first one I'm identifying so much more with Bloom this time around and I think that's quite interesting in itself because obviously Stephen is a 22 year old Bloom is a 38 year old so that's my two readings are more or less contemporaneous with their Mm. with their ages but I think the thing that has transformed it and continues to transform it for me right now is hearing it voiced by so many different people in so many different ways. Mm. So we have, um, obviously, men and women. We have people, obviously, we have a a whole range of Irish writers, but we have uh, Anglophone writers from all over the world and a few non-Anglophone writers, actually. Mm. We have this monument of world literature being read and being expressed and being interpreted by voices from all over the world. And it's almost difficult for me to express quite how transcendent that experience mm. is and how transformative and how it is enriching my connection mm. with the book. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to get these these recordings out there. And, um, mm. you know, it's, a part of me is slightly uh, frustrated that we'll be drip feeding them between <laughs> February and June because 
Uh, I just want everyone to hear all Drip of them now. You're feeding at a pretty rapid pace. Though. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, okay. Every, every weekday between February and June. Do you know what I mean? And so, yeah, so that is my Ulysses now. Mm. It's a sort of, it's it's gone from scepticism to ambivalence with mixed in with respect and admiration to this very recent but very profound connection with um, with the text. Um mm. Yeah, well, I've kind of exhausted myself with that, <laughs> with that response. Lex, I'll hand over to you. Voilà, while I, uh, voilà. Take a swig of whiskey. <laughs> Catharsis. So, so the 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 reason why I wanted to pose this question was, um, you know, I've in preparing for this adventure of the centennial, um, have been um, listening and and watching uh, this incredible Ulysses like uh, network of of. Uh, books and videos uh, that you get uh, by looking at YouTube. And, and what was amazing to me, really remarkable to me, is how every time I hear someone talk about Ulysses, it's, it's like they're seeing the same beautiful thing that I'm seeing, but they're retelling of it. And what they notice about it, it comes from a totally different angle. So I'll give you an example. This, this um, YouTuber named uh, Chris, Chris Reich, uh, American, seemingly, you know, retired teacher of some kind, um, who maybe we'll link to on YouTube. He has, you know, episode by episode. Uh, when, you, when you say seemingly retired. <laughs> he seems very relaxed. Very relaxed to me. More relaxed than, than, he seems happy than my father seems. Dad, if you're hearing this, you should really retire um, and write poetry. Um, so, uh, so he he Hello, he, Dad. Said, he said he said in the first episode, uh, Ulysses. The major theme of Ulysses is usurpation. And if you'd asked me, you know, what are five things that Ulysses is about, I, usurpation wouldn't have made the top five. But then I think, oh, well, yeah, the last word of the first episode of, of Ulysses is usurper. And, and of course, both in uh, the Odyssey and in Hamlet, the two major uh, kind of touchstones for Ulysses, um, the, the father has been displaced. And, and then, of course, in, in, in the case of, of Ulysses as well. So, OK, obviously that makes sense, but I didn't see it. So this, this is why I think everybody has their own Ulysses. And, we, and I think we've already heard a couple. So what's my Ulysses? All right. So let's get let's get to it. So my what, Ulysses. What, what's your Ulysses? What's, <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> we're, we're, we're chomping at the bit. So, so my Ulysses asks two fundamental questions. Is the life of the artist possible? And is democracy possible? And those are the two um, questions we see through the eyes of, of Stephen and Bloom. Stephen is struggling um, to live the life of the artist. Um, he's under this dual oppression of uh, the Catholic Church and of the the historical burden of Ireland. I guess the triple, triple oppression, the third being uh, 2,500 years of the literary canon, which is thundering through his head at all, at all times. And as an artist, he's trying to free himself. He says, famously, history is the, night, is the nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. Um, if you think great art makes life worth living, great music, great films, um, then you want Stephen to win this struggle. You know, you want Stephen to find a way to free himself. Um, and similarly, Bloom, he wants to be accepted in a community. He wants to be accepted in his home. Um, and this is a story of Bloom, this marginal figure, this guy who's not quite Jewish, not quite Irish, um, you know, who is, is charitable, who's decent. At every stage, he's made fun of for being charitable and decent. Um, whether he can find um, 
acceptance, whether what he says about tolerance and uh, peoples of the world needing to um, live in harmony, whether that's you know something more than just um, an idle dream. And uh, we spend the whole of, of his day in these little encounters where uh, we test this proposition. You know, can we live together? Can we live in a community? And and that's what's so heroic about this book. It's not about, uh, you know, the the slaying of dragons and the conquering of cities. It's about that heroic act of trying to live together, trying to be in a community. And and you said uh, so wonderfully, you know, holding a mirror up to this moment. Um, we've never, at least, you know, Americans... French, British people, we, we and, and ev- everyone in the world now we're asking these questions about whether um, whether we can really live together, um, whether the, the community as we know them uh, as we know them can 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 survive. And um, in some really you know shocking and, and difficult ways, we're asking these questions. And I think that's the question of Ulysses. Mm-hmm. You know, can can art prosper? Uh, can the life of the artist be lived? And can we live together? Can we find a way of realizing not just democracy? And it's not about political parties and, and, and debates. It's about the what John Dewey you know, called democracy as, as a way of life, mm-hmm. um, whether we can actually live together and listen and empathize and help each other and see each other. Uh, and that's why, you know, that's why ultimately Ulysses, to me, stands for a, you know, a kind of reconciliation, you know, that that in, in, and if you out there are listening and, and want a reason to read this, this is my this is my bottom line. Why I read Ulysses is because that in reading this book, you know, the the, the ultimate message of, of Ulysses for me, my Ulysses, is that in a fragmented and divided life that some kind of wholeness is possible and that, you know, despite all of our mistakes and our suffering, that forgiveness is possible, and and that finally, you know, despite all of the hatreds and history and intolerance, that some kind of community is possible, and, and that's what's heroic, right? It's it's every community is sad and and frustrated and ridiculous, um, but that's the hero uh, mm-hmm. of this of this story for me. So Lex is now crying. <laughs> I think that's so so well put and so beautifully put. Uh, and, and if you haven't picked up your copy of Ulysses from your local bookshop, independent I, bookseller, exactly. I don't know uh, what you're what you've been doing. Um, but I, I think to add on to that second point, Lex, it's not only can we live together, but can literary traditions live together? And and to Adam's point about hearing all of these different voices, whether Anglophone or otherwise. And I would really emphasise the other, the otherwise section of, of that phrase. I think Joyce himself is the first person, this is what I was struck by, and we'll go on to this in, in my initial reading of the first section, um, was the kind of mixture and, and, and collision of all of these different literary traditions. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, the Irish tradition, we have the Anglo-Saxon tradition, but we also have Welsh, Gaelic, mm-hmm. um, Eastern, you French. know, French. Uh, he, he's talking about the Bhagavad Gita. He's talking about the Upanishads. He's talking about, um, you know, collections of Welsh. The Torah. The Torah, the Welsh mm-hmm. prose tales from the 8th, 11th century, 13th century. And it's it's just, a, it's, um, it's, it's a melange mm-hmm. of, of all of these traditions. And they all, they they not only survive but they're better for it because mm-hmm. of their intersection and yeah. their collision and, and that's so powerful and i mean that i mean one mustn't also forget as well that this is a work of world literature in as much mm. as it was written by an exiled irishman right. published by an american woman in france right. like i think right. that 
there's something um, very telling about mm. the, the fact that the way that from this book whence it was, comes. And, yeah. and this gives a great chance of saying that this book would not have been possible without without women and without some very strong women. So number one, why does this book take place on June sixteenth, nineteen o four? This was the day that Nora Barnacle um, said yes to James Joyce, mm-hmm. and and helped him out of this despair and isolation. Uh, it was the day of their first date mm-hmm. um, that ended seemingly very happily for, for Joyce. Maybe we'll come to that later. Um, and that Nora Barnacle um, offered him a new a new way of connecting with the world, mm-hmm. um, number one. Number two, Joyce was uh, in a long line of um, spendthrift dandies. Um, his father and grandfather were both kind of... Um, pretended well to do but but uh, burned through all their money and and Joyce would never have been able to write this book um and find a living had it not been for Harriet Weaver his his uh my son his his patron a uh, british uh woman who who gave him something over i think a million pounds uh in today's money uh, over the course of of Joyce's career uh, and then finally, Sylvia Beach, mm-hmm. right? So, and Sylvia Beach, and and of course the women of the Little Review, mm-hmm. um, who uh, first published Ulysses in serial form. So this is a book mm-hmm. written in a technical sense by a man, but produced in every sense by by women. As is so often the case with these books, as we're finding out more and more, the behind the scenes work of women is so crucial. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Lex, you've just described kind of the <laughs> the support network that essentially sustained this figure of James Joyce. But could you tell us a little bit about you know who he, who he was and, and what he came from. Okay, so here's here's sort of the the, the listicle version of of James Joyce's life. Um, born in 1882, uh, oldest of a large family. Uh, as I mentioned, father who was sort of upper middle class when Joyce was born, uh, burned through all of the family funds and was downwardly mobile. And many of the characters in Ulysses we see are, are downwardly mobile <laughs> and alcoholic. Um, the, the the great Irish uh, nationalist leader Charles uh, Parnell. Um, Lou, had his kind of downfall. Uh, he had a, a adultery scandal and was um, sort of cast out of the uh, out of the out of prominence by uh, the Catholic Church, uh, among others. Uh, the same year that John Joyce, uh, James Joyce's father, lost his job. So this idea of of, de- of decline of of um, the the difficult burden and heritage of one's family is is kind of point number one. Point number two. His gifts, right? Uh, he was seen from a very young age to have an incredible gift for music, uh, a wonderful tenor. Uh, music is everywhere in in Ulysses. Um, it, all the characters are singing or have songs in their heads. Um, probably the, the happiest single moment in the entire novel of Ulysses is when, um, at the end of when uh, uh, Stephen Dedalus's father, Simon Dedalus, uh, who is very problematic relationship with, is singing uh, an aria in the Ormond Hotel in the, in, the, in the afternoon. Bloom is hearing this, and it's it's this moment of kind of aesthetic joy and, and perfection. And when we get to the sirens um, episode, so music music is is everywhere. And Joyce was a gifted musician, and uh, and gifted in in the music of words. Um, the first page of Dubliners, um, the character is is reifying, is turning words into things. The word paralysis, the word nomon, and um, and Joyce uh, is constantly turning words into living creatures, uh, and we'll get into that when we, I think, when we see in in, in Nestor uh, and in Proteus. He had an incredible memory. He knew uh, reams of Dante and Yeats um, by heart. Mm. Uh, he knew about five or six languages fluently. 
Uh, Which and bits, uh, bits of another. Well, it's a good question. So um, I would. So he studied Italian and French in in university. Uh, Latin he he knew also very well as from his Jesuit mm. education. Um, and I would guess I guess you know German. Um, but he knew bits of twenty languages, right? So he would go to the train station in Zurich uh, to collect words, so to speak. And so his word lists in, in Finnegan's Wake include mm-hmm. things in you know, Romanian, Icelandic, Swahili. Um, and so he had this inc- incredible uh, recall and an incredible um, linguistic talent. Educated by the Jesuits, graduates uh, in, in nineteen hundred. His first ever publication is a review of Henrik Ibsen. Uh, Ibsen, great realist uh, playwright, uh, you know, grounding his uh, his works in in the real lives of, of people and, and and the dynamics of families. So Joyce teaches himself Dano Norwegian to write to Ibsen in Ibsen's own language, saying in Ibsen's language, "You can die in peace, peace because your torch has now been passed to me." Um, not something all of us would do necessarily, um, but Joyce was clearly had very had very great ambitions and 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 a, and a belief in himself. Graduates in 1902. Uh, gets a reply from Ibsen, by the way, a very gracious one. Graduates in 1902, comes to Paris, uh, where we're sitting now, uh, in this beautiful library of Shakespeare and Company. Uh, you can hear the the sirens going off in the background, uh, and maybe the piano as well. Um, so he lives in Paris for a year uh, in on the left bank, and then goes back uh, to Dublin after receiving a very uh, terse but to the point telegram from his father, um, uh, come home, mother dying. And... Mother, his mother dies, and then in 1904 he meets Nora, and so we, we, we see this turning point in Stephen's life as at the same moment a turning point in Joyce's life. Joyce and Nora leave uh, Ireland together uh, and never go back. Mm-hmm. So Joyce writes um, Dubliner's Portrait of the Artist, Ulysses, arguably some of the greatest works of fiction anywhere, but certainly some of the greatest uh, uh, based in Ireland. He's not in Ireland. Mm-hmm. He's writing home for you know descriptions of what signs looked like and how long it would take to walk from one part of Dublin to another. Mm-hmm. Um, so he uh, he is the great Irish uh, you know national novelist that that left Ireland and never went home. Um, just like Beckett. Just like Beckett. Yeah. Um, and Beckett, there's a there's a legend that Beckett wore. Shoes that didn't fit him as a as a tribute to Joyce. I think a lo- I think a lot of what he did was a tribute, <laughs> <laughs> or reproach, and or reproach. To so Joyce. so exactly. So so the last thing I want to say, of course, is that Ulysses um, uh, was was the, his third great work, Dubliner's his, uh, book of fifteen short stories uh, about Dublin, done in mostly a realist a realist form. We we meet some of the characters uh, mm. in Dublin Dubliners that that uh, that will pop up uh, in in Ulysses and Portrait of the Artist, nineteen sixteen. Which is the story of Stephen's childhood. It begins literally in the voice of a child, uh, yeah, and then Stephen's yeah. education uh, at Clongo's uh, Wood, uh, one of the kind of the the posh uh, Catholic uh, uh, public schools, Je- a Jesuit mm. uh, school, where his he has to pretend his father is a gentleman, um, and meanwhile he's off drinking and being downwardly mobile. And um, <laughs> so, portrait is our introduction to Stephen, mm. and and so we we meet Stephen at the beginning of Ulysses, having those of us who who, who have Red Portrait, having literally grown up mm, with Stephen mm. uh, and experienced, you know, these preachers yelling at him about hell and his incredible guilt and his mm, desires and mm. and his his shame and his at his father being kind of this this um, you know wonderful singer but this sort of drunken, mm. uh, ineffective uh, man and and 
And so and so he Stephen Stephen walks into Ulysses, you know, as we would say in the epic, you know, in medias res. You know, he, mm. we already see we already know something about him in the middle of things, in the middle of things. <laughs> uh, and so Were you translating that for me. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so and so and so Ulysses, you know, he, he works on this abroad. Um, he is, has these maps, these incredibly detailed maps of the city of Dublin. He's writing home to get, you know, the the the, the street level view of things. It's mm. incredibly detailed. Dublin is is the is the maybe the most important character in the book, mm. next to Stephen and Bloom and Molly. Mm-hmm. And um, and it comes out in 1922, uh, almost 100 years from when you're hearing mm. this, hearing this podcast. As the kind of expert on. Uh, Irish literature in terms of what comes before Ulysses and then certainly what comes after Ulysses. I think it's important for those listening to understand that Joyce is trying to, in this book, cast off Irish speech in some ways. He's inherited Mm -hmm. a literary tradition um, that is kind of trying to exalt Irish literature tales um, and there are kind of widespread hopes of a language revival, which is mm-hmm. to say, of Irish. Um, and in the dead, for anyone who's who's read that short story, or in the in Dubliners, which is the collection um, of short stories from from where it comes, uh, he's grappling with this idea of speech and Irish speech, um, which to him feels kind of rote and tired and tiresome, and and dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and he writes himself into a corner in some ways because he has all of these characters in the book who are rep- who are standing in for all of these different traditions um, that he's inherited but he essentially wants to kill them off he doesn't really know what to do with mm-hmm. this tradition uh, he knows that it's not tenable he knows that Ireland and and certainly it's grandiose to say the world needs something new mm. um, and and so how does he do it well he there's a kind of culminating uh, effect of all the stories and and that that culminates in the dead the final story um, and, and specifically, it culminates at the end of the dead, which I think is one of the most beautiful uh, passages in all of literature, <laughs> certainly Irish literature. And so I'd like to read it as a way to kind of set the scene, cl- certainly clear the air for what comes next. Um, I-, I won't give uh, much kind of explanation. All of I, I just want to set up the, the 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 background. This is between um, Gabriel, who is a teacher, part time book reviewer, and his wife Greta. Greta has just told the story of a young man called Michael Fury who died. She, it was a kind of odd lover of hers. He died when he was 40, uh, 17, rather, very young. Um, and Greta's just fallen asleep and, and Gabriel's watching her. And this is um, and, and they've just had a big dinner party with many of their friends, family members. Um, and at the dinner, there's singing. There's there is kind of jokes. There are jokes being told. There are old anecdotes. Again, this idea of this old kind of Irish speech swirling around, rattling around inside these old aunts being sung. Um, and so how does Joyce do it? Well, <laughs> this is how he does it. Again, this is at the very end. The air of the room chilled his shoulders. He stretched himself cautiously along under the sheets and lay down beside his wife. One by one, they were all becoming shades. Better pass boldly into that other world in the full glory of some passion than fade and wither dismally with age. He thought of how she who lay beside him had locked in her heart for so many years that image of her lover's eyes when he had told her that he did not wish to live. 
Generous tears filled Gabriel's eyes. He had never felt like that himself towards any woman, but he knew that such a feeling must be love. The tears gathered more thickly in his eyes, and in the partial darkness he imagined he saw the form of a young man standing under a dripping tree. Other forms were near. His soul had approached that region where dwell the vast hopes of the dead. He was conscious of, but could not apprehend, their wayward and flickering existence. His own identity was fading out into a grey, impalpable world. The solid world itself, which these dead had one time reared and lived in, was dissolving and dwindling. A few mm. light taps upon the pane made him turn to the window. It had begun to snow again. He watched sleepily the flakes, silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hills, falling softly upon the bog of Allen, and farther westward, softly falling into the dark, mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling, too, upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fury lay buried. It lay thickly, drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones, on the spears of the little gate, on the barren thorns. His soul swooned softly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling, like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. By God, that's fine writing, isn't it? <laughs> It's been so many years since I read that, and I so, yeah. it is it's so and and it's it's a transcendent moment. I mean, he 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 pulls back. Yeah. He he basically kills Gabriel. Gabriel or softly. Mm. Gabriel fades away. All of the characters, and that's what's so beautiful about it. It is, so, it is gentle and it is soft, and and the characters fade away, turn into these shades, and then it's Joyce pulling back, mm. rising above mm. it all, mm. and then and saying goodbye to it with snow. Mm. Not rain, snow. I, I think it's astonishing. astonishing. Even the sound of it, the S's and the F's. At the end, yeah. Sound yeah. Like, like, a, like a snowfall. Yeah. With those repeated S's and F's. Yeah, oh, it's, yeah. It's, it's yeah. just uh, yeah. staggering. Thank you for listening. Well, no, thank you for reading. Now, now I'm, um, I'm conscious of the, the time. Fact, um, well, conscious. Uh, I mentioned Tristram Shandy earlier, and I don't know if you've, if you've read it, but in, that is a book where it takes about 300 pages for the protagonist to be born. Um, and I... <laughs> I'm slightly worried that people might think this is a um, a podcast experiment in that, um, you know, we're going to get through 10 episodes without actually starting so talking the about yeah. the book. But there is one thing we do need to talk about before we mm. finally launch ourselves mm. into Telemachus, mm. which is what the hell do we mean when we when we say Telemachus, when we see Ness? Yeah, what are these Greek names all yeah. about? Why is this book called Ulysses? OK, so a, cu a couple of a couple of ways into that uh, momentous question. So number one, um, Joyce's is in a in an, in an argument in a in a wrestling match with with the western canon and who lies at the heart at the at the very very beginning of western literary tradition it's it's homer so the homer's odyssey and the iliad um were written down around we think 750 bc uh these were recited um poems sung poems uh, they were sung, right? They, they, and and I think there's an Irish, I think there's an Irish resonance with the with the the music of of Homer. Mm -hmm. But I think um, 
I, I'll, I'll bring in my one of my great teacher and, and hero of mine, Harold Bloom. Not for the probably for the first time with the not podcast. For the, not for the first time in the podcast. <laughs> who wrote a book called The Anxiety of Influence and and said that all great artists are in an argument and in a wrestling match with their predecessors. Um, that's what the anxiety of influence um, is, that we fear that we're only repeating in some hackneyed way uh, what we've read ourselves. And mm. um, how do we say something that's ours, that's original, that's that's new, bring something mm. new into the world? Mm. And um, and so Joyce, he, he wants to, as Alice said, wants, wants to bring something um, new and original, not just for Ireland, but to, but to, 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 the, to the world. Uh, what better way to do that than picking a fight with Homer? Okay, mm-hmm. so that's that's number one. Number two, why Homer? Um, so this is where we have to bring in Frank Budgen, and who was Joyce's pal, artist, friend, drinking buddy, worked at the British Consulate in Zurich. And Budgen gives us, uh, in this, his work, uh, James Joyce and the Making of Ulysses, uh, which we have a copy right here, who... Um, uh, lying on a velvet lying, bed. Lying on a velvet bed. This is George Whitman's copy. So we're looking at a picture of Sylvia Beach right now in this book-lined room. She's looking at us more and, like. And <laughs> she's looking at us more like. She's surveying surveying the scene. Um, she passed off the name Shakespeare and Company to George Whitman, who bought this book that's in my hands right now. Um, and uh, that Sylvia Whitman, uh, her namesake and George's daughter, kindly um, lent to me. And one of the great things about reading Ulysses and reading about Ulysses is that all of the great things that have been written about the book. So you read the book and it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then you read this book, which I never read before, James Joyce and the Making of Ulysses by Frank Budgen. And it's just, it's it, it it's like an old, beautiful glass of wine reading this book. So Joyce is talking to Budgen in this book. They're sitting in Zurich and Joyce is telling him about this book he's writing <coughs> called Ulysses. So why not, why not share a little bit um, with you? Joyce spoke again more briskly. Uh, you seem to have read a lot, Mr. Budgen. Do you know of any complete, all-round character presented by any writer? With quick interest, I summoned up a whole population of invented persons. Of the fiction writers, Balzac, perhaps, might supply him? No, Flaubert? No, Dostoevsky or Tolstoy, then? Their people are exciting, wonderful, but not complete. Shakespeare, surely. But no, again, the footlights, the proscenium arch, the fatal curtain are all there to present to us not complete, all-round beings, but only three hours of passionate conflict. I came to rest on Goethe. What about Goethe, I said. Uh, what about Faust? And then as a second shot, or Hamlet. Faust, said Joyce, far from being a complete man. He isn't a man at all. Is he an old man or a young man? Where is home and family? We don't know. And he can't be complete because he's never alone. Mephistopheles is always hanging around him at his side or his heels. We see a lot of him, that's all. It was easy to see the answer in Joyce's mind to his own question. Your complete man in literature is, I suppose, Ulysses. Mm. Yes, said Joyce. No age Faust isn't a man. But you mentioned Hamlet. Hamlet's a human being, but he's a son only. Ulysses is son to Laertes, but he's father to Telemachus, mm. husband to Penelope, lover of Calypso, companion in arms of the Greek mm. warriors around Troy, and king of Ithaca. He was subjected to many trials, but with wisdom and courage came through them all. Don't forget he was a war dodger who tried to evade military service. They're having this conversation during World War I in Switzerland. Don't forget that he was a war dodger who tried to evade military service by simulating madness. He might never have taken up arms and gone to Troy, but the Greek recruiting sergeant was too clever for him, and while he was plowing the sands, placed young Telemachus in front of his plow. But once at the war, the conscientious objector became a, a jusco boutiste. When the others wanted to abandon the siege, he insisted on staying until Troy should fall. I laughed at, Lewis, at Ulysses as a lead swinger. I guess that's a, some kind of 1930s term for 
belligerent, and Joyce continued, <laughs> Another thing. The history of Ulysses. I'm not done. <laughs> I'm not done. Another thing, said James Joyce. The history of Ulysses did not come to an end when the Trojan War was over. It began just when the other Greek heroes went back to live the rest of their lives in peace. And then, Joyce laughed, he was the first gentleman in Europe. When he advanced naked to meet the young princess, he hid from her maidenly eyes, mm -hmm. the parts that mattered of his brine-soaked, barnacle-encrusted body. Mm. He was an inventor, too. The tank is his creation. Remember World War I. Wooden horse or iron box, mm. it doesn't matter. They are both shells containing armed warriors. So Ulysses to Joyce, the all-round man, and he mm. wanted Leopold Bloom, who some have called the most fully realized character in all of literature. Mm. Um, he wanted Leopold Bloom to top, uh, to top Ulysses. So why do we say Telemachus? Why do we say th these names? Because uh, Joyce takes the story of, of Odysseus that we call him Odysseus in some, uh, in some parts of the world, Ulysses in other parts of the world, um, takes his story of, of the homecoming from Troy. Mm. Um, his son, Telemachus, who is searching around Greece for news of his father and his wife, Penelope, who is fighting off, uh, in Penelope's case, successfully, <laughs> suitors. Uh, the suitors uh, who are looking for her hand to take over uh, uh, Odysseus' throne in, in Ithaca. Um, and, uh, and Joyce takes that as his, as his beginning. And so we see in each of the episodes uh, of Ulysses, each of the 18 episodes, uh, a correspondence with, with something happening to Odysseus or Telemachus or, uh, or Penelope. But, and this is really important to your question, Adam, Joyce never writes those names into the, into the book. Mm -hmm. So why do we? Well, I mean, those of you out there who love um, Socrates or love dialogues in general or, or inventive poets that make you kind of lean in and fill in the gaps. This is, this is Joyce mm. as well. He and Anne Enright, who uh, wrote a, 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 a wonderful article in the New York Review of Books uh, this last week uh, called Dubliners, um, she makes this point, which we'll link to. She, she made this point that uh, Joyce forces you to read the book uh, to write, to co-write the book with him, not just to read, but to co-write. She says, Ulysses exists not on the page, but in your reading of the page. Mm. And so Joyce knows that we know that this is about the Odyssey, but he makes us fill that in. So in my mm. copy of Ulysses and many of yours out there, you'll write in Telemachus on that, in that mm. chapter. You'll write in mm. Nestor and Circe and Scylla and Charybdis. So we'll, we'll do a little bit of that, uh, of that Greek myth-making um, mm. as we go along. But, uh, but we, in, in bringing that part of the Odyssey into into this book, uh, we're co-writing Ulysses with him. You know, th this is often observed of great writers. Uh, there's a scholar at Oxford called um, Emma Smith who said the same thing of Shakespeare that he his work has a lot of gappiness in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one thing you said that um, Joyce didn't write it down in the book, and he certainly didn't. But he did actually write down a schema, like quite a he detailed did. schema Indeed. that he sent to several friends as ways of kind of explaining it. And uh, I mean, the copy I have is in the back of uh, Patrick Hastings, the guide to James Joyce's Ulysses, where not only does he name the episode, so as you said, Telemachus, Nestor, Proteus, and that's essentially the structure we'll be using for these podcasts. Mm. But for each of them, he also gives a time. Mm. So, um, well, let's, let's go through each of the things just for Telemachus. So episode name, Telemachus, time, 8 a.m., scene, tower, color, gold and white, technique, Narrative brackets young. Correspondences. Stephen equals Telemachus. Buck equals An Antinous. Antinous. Ant the chief suitor of Penelope. Mm -mm -mm. Milkwoman equals mentor. Next category. Science slash art. Theology. <laughs> Meaning. Dispossessed son in struggle. <laughs> organ. 
Okay, there's no specific bodily organ named for this one. They come a little bit later. And then finally, symbols, Hamlet, Island, Air. So for each of them, and I, um, I do urge our readers to, to get hold of Patrick Hastings' book or any of the other books where this schema is reproduced, because as a way to understanding, in addition to the, the Homeric correspondences, we, you have essentially an entire detailed structure of what Joyce was intending to do with with, with each I, I think this schema is absolutely hilarious and it, it reminds me as if you'd kind of encounter it in uh, Washington Square Park and some kind of new age hippie hands you mm-hmm. a sheet with with bodily organ, colour, um, your astrology. Eleven stages to paradise. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also the thing like when you get, you know, when you're a kid, the first dictionary you get, you look up all the rude words. Here you get kind of organ, you scroll down, okay, where are genitals, genitals, genitals. Okay, lotus eaters. Lotus eaters. Let's see where... <laughs> You do that without yeah. even looking. <laughs> Lex, your copy of Ulysses flops open. Flops open. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? What is that? How curious. No, I'm more of a Nazica guy. Okay, so we're going to talk about um, the first three episodes in um, Joyce's schema. So Telemachus, Nestor and Proteus, which is kind of Stephen's first triad, let's say, in, um, in Ulysses. Um, but perhaps, Lex, before we dive into that, you could give us a little bit about the, the Homeric uh, correspondences at this point. Sure. And now I'm, I'm uh, cribbing basically from the Ulysses Annotated uh, by Don Gifford, one of the um, companion texts that um, I was sort of scared of the first time I read Ulysses. I took the Harry Blamier's um, New Bloomsday book, which are these little synopses chapter by chapter, which are fantastic and, and I highly recommend. And I just for the first time, I'm reading this Ulysses Annotated, which gives just wonderful um, tidbits and, and goes, it basically is the, it's the comprehensive uh, encyclopedia of everything uh, referred to in, in the book, but it's, it's wonderfully written. So he gives these great little um, episode summaries at the beginning uh, that brings out the Homeric parallels. Okay, so Telemachus, the son of Odysseus, who has been missing his father uh, for almost 20 years. Uh, Odysseus has been first fighting the Trojan War for 10 years, and then it takes 10 years to get home. So book one of the Odyssey begins with an invocation of the muse. Uh, followed by an account of the Council of the Gods on Olympus in which Zeus decides that it's time for Odysseus to return home. The scene then shifts to Ithaca where we find Telemachus, Odysseus's son, quote, a boy, daydreaming of his father's return. He's unhappy, threatened with betrayal and displacement by the suitors who have collected around his mother Penelope during his father's absence. These arrogant men, led by Antinous, whose name means anti-mind, and Eurymachos, wide fighter, mock the omens sent by Zeus, going so far as to plot Telemachus's death and to boast that they will kill Odysseus should he return home. So this is about him um, uh, being afraid uh, of his, his own displacement and, and uh, about to assert his independence uh, of his mother and a journey for news of his father. So that's, mm-hmm. that's the, um, uh, the Homeric um, recall of, uh, of episode one. Episode two, Nestor, uh, where we see Stephen teaching uh, at his day job um, at Mr. Deasy's school. In book two of the Odyssey, Telemachus, now on his journey through uh, the cities of Greece looking for news of his father, faces the suitors, first before leaving, faces the suitors in council, is repudiated by them, then sails to the mainland to seek news of his father as Athena in the guise of mentor, uh, the character Mentor had counseled him. In book three, Telemachus arrives on the mainland and approaches Nestor, the master charioteer for advice. And we see uh, uh, Mr. Deasy, the, the would-be 
uh, advisor and father figure to Stephen, um, giving um, pretty horrendous advice. Okay. Um, and finally, episode three, Proteus. In book four of the Odyssey, Telemachus is at the court of Menelaus, who was the general um, of uh, of the, well, he was the, the wronged husband. Uh, Helen left him uh, for Prince Paris of Troy. That began the Trojan War, uh, the brother of Agamemnon. Mm-hmm. So Menelaus uh, tells Telemachus, the son of Ulysses, now at his court, Menelaus made it home fine, recounts the story of his journey home from Troy. Forced by adverse weather to detour to Egypt, where he set sail again, he was becalmed on Pharos, a rocky island just west of the Nile. Menelaus did not know which of the gods had him pinned down, for it turned out neglect of the rules of sacrifice. <laughs> so the daughter of the ancient of the sea, Proteus, second in command to Poseidon, takes pity on Menelaus and intervenes to tell him that her father had the power of prophecy. To get Proteus to speak, Menelaus would have to grasp and hold him, even though he would take all the forms of all the beasts and water and blinding fire in the attempt to escape. Menelaus succeeds and Proteus answers his questions, telling him how to break the spell and telling him also of the deaths of Ajax and Agamemnon and of whereabouts of Odysseus, who is marooned and in bondage on Calypso's island. So there we have it. Telemachus, Nestor, and Proteus. Great. How important, Lex, is it for readers who haven't read the Odyssey to know this? Well, I I think it's it's both crucially important and unimportant at all. I mean, it's you have uh, all of these tools in your reader's toolkit, some of which are uh, you can go to Shakespeare, some of which you can go to Homer, some of which you can go to Irish nationalism, uh, you know, and and any one of those could give you a totally complete mm. uh, and completely satisfying mm. experience of Ulysses. I, I'm a, you know, Philhellene. I love this ancient Greek stuff. I think these stories are great. I think the language is great. Um, I came to it very late in life, um, but I, I think it's fun. But only if you find it fun should you uh, bother with it. If you don't, uh, Joyce has plenty of more, plenty more goodies uh, and tricks in, in store. Okay, okay, let's let's get jump in. Should we? Let's go to it. So, okay, we're on Martello Tower, the Martello Tower, the Martello Tower. What's the Martello Tower? What is a Martello Tower? So, um, there is there there are still plenty of these around. The very Martello Tower where this one takes place in Sandy Cove is still there. It's visitable. It's in fact the James Joyce. Uh, museum, but these Martello towers were built uh, around Ireland, around Britain, and around places in the British Empire. They were afraid of the French. They were afraid of the French, and why mm. would they not be? <laughs> um, so Joyce, and this may sound eerily familiar to people who have uh, started reading the book, Joyce spent some time, six nights in fact, in a Martello tower in 1904. So not in June 1904, but in September 1904. Um, that was being rented by his uh, university friend, Oliver St. John, or St. John Gogarty. Um, and now Gogarty wrote in his in his memoir that uh, Joyce left abruptly after an incident with a loaded revolver, something again which is um, echoed in in this opening chapter. Um, so this is this is where we are. These are the forty foot stone defensive towers, no longer in use as uh, as de- as defensive objects, and in fact inhabited by um, well, in this case. A bunch of medical students. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so that that is where we find ourselves, and we open with a description of Buck Mulligan. You might be uh, deceived into thinking that Buck Mulligan is the protagonist of the book, from the uh, the attention and the detail um, that is that is afforded him in in the opening chapter. But 
Um, I think it does become quite clear that that um, at least this part of the book, this, these first few sections of the book are very much about Stephen. Mm. Yeah, Buck Mulligan, I mean, he, he jumps off the page, right? I mm. mean, he, he's bounding into his morning, uh, performing a black mass, again, kind of a, a, a parody of the mass. Mm. He sings out in Chowibo al Taradei. I mean, he's he's shaving but everything he does is a marvelous joke and mm-hmm. that's that's sort of the the way we see him all through this he's larger than life but he's never quite serious he never quite gets anything done mm-hmm. he in a way is the most kind of upwardly mobile he's a <laughs> medical student who is you know knows all of the top literary people in town and who everyone thinks is is destined for for great things but he's in this chapter um and throughout the book a foil to Stephen Stephen mm-hmm. is disgusted right basically by a buck's um you know, total um, disengagement with anything truly um, sincere or lasting, which is what Stephen wants to create and mm. feel so so uh, daunted by. But um, Buck Mulligan is how can you how can you uh, you know hardly um, you know not fall in love with with this stately plump character who mm. bounds up and starts and starts shaving to kick mm. off the book. It is such a lovely way to start the book because, like so many of these big books. I think we all have notions about who's reading the book, who's writing criticism about the book, who's even writing the book. And so to open the page to such a welcoming, um, and I've been warned that it gets worse, (laughs) 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 Um, but such a kind of warm and and jolly character is is lovely. And and it's it's a fun it's a fun first couple pages, and it's a reminder. Um, I've I've had this with other great books, you know. Again, capital G, capital B. Moby Dick comes to mind. Adam mentioned there is there is there are so many kind of gatekeepers and so much myth around them. Mm. And then once you just open the page and start reading, it's a blast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this I think is an important point, and it's something which came up in the conversation um, I had with Patrick Hastings the other day, which our listeners can 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 hear on this podcast feed. <laughs> is well, there's two things about about this opening. I mean, Lex, you said that. Um, Joyce asks you to write the book with him. Mm. He also, um, and this is something that, that Patrick said, and um, and you know, he although he also said he's not the first one to say this, is that Joyce teaches you, he trains you mm. how to read the book mm. oh, that's so as interesting. you read. So um, yes, it does get more esoteric. It does get denser. It does mm. get more confusing as the mm. book goes on. Mm. But in these opening chapters. Joyce is preparing, preparing you. you. So, so, so how is he preparing you? Well, I mean, the the incursion, let's say, of um, internal monologue mm-hmm. um, onto the page. Now, this is something which I think sort of contemporary readers might be completely unsurprised by and completely unfazed by. But at this at this stage in the development of particularly Anglophone literature, the um, kind of unannounced arrival of internal monologue between a, a jumble of passages. thoughts just happening yeah this but, was this was mm. more or less unheard of or this mm. was certainly something that the general reader would not be prepared for mm. and so in this opening chapter and in fact these opening chapters that we're going to discuss this does happen but it happens gradually you get a little mm-hmm. bit of it Joyce kind of eases you into that um yeah, that, that radical mode. change. Mm. Exactly, that mode of, of, mm. of encountering. And, and this, is a, this is a great counterpoint to the Odyssey and, and any of kind of Homer's characters is in those, in those epics, there is almost no interiority, mm-hmm. right? And so he's, in terms of this arm wrestle, in terms of the anxiety of influence, he's flipping an entirely external book mm-hmm. on its head. 
Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. No, that's that's. And you put me in mind of actually when I interviewed uh, Madeline Miller about right. Cersei, and that's one thing that she said is that the sort of she said that the psychology of you don't get it. Of I mean, it's kind of it's implied. You know, mm. it's it's you know if what you get is is implicit, you have mm. to read between the lines mm. to to find out what kind of man Odysseus I, is. There is, I mean, to, to to kind of argue argue against ourselves. I mean, there there is an interesting parallel to. Odysseus of all the Greeks is the wiliest, is the cleverest, mm. is the one who uses his brain. Mm. So we don't get access to Odysseus's thoughts, mm. but you can see why Odysseus yeah, would yeah. appeal to uh, Joyce because he's the one who thinks himself out of mm. out of his problems. You know, he tricks the Cyclops and mm. um, you know finds a way you know through Skill and, and, and Shribdis. and and Hamlet, of course, the other great is the is probably the most. Uh, full psycho I mean psychologically mm. yeah, drawn yeah. character in all of world literature up to mm. that up to up to the point where Shakespeare writes it so mm. um, but yet you don't get uh, Hamlet's stream of consciousness yeah. no, no, um, you know, I it's, mean, you know through mm. the soliloquies perhaps you know in, 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 yes. in a sense but mm. as close as you can get but yeah. still in a stylized way whereas here yeah, you yeah. get thoughts as you actually think thoughts mm. which is little yeah, bits yeah. of things mm. not a full not you know nothing rhymed nothing mm. fully thought through mm. it's it's thoughts in the way that they actually happen in mm. your mind let's just stick with Hamlet a little bit because mm. um, and Alice maybe this, this struck you as well but on, <laughs> on sort of rereading it I, I'd kind of you know the 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 sort of Homeric parallels, so a sort of unsurprising in a sense. You know, the it's it's signaled in the title, it's signaled in the the schema. You know, it's mm. it's in the reputation. One thing I'd I'd forgotten from from my first reading was how present mm. Hamlet and Shakespeare are in this opening chapter and and throughout the book. And like, mm. I think there definitely is this sort of. This is Joyce. This has got to be Joyce announcing himself, right? Because if you're gonna. If you're going to take, if you're going on, to pick a fight with Shakespeare and Homer, <laughs> right, 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 exactly. You know, yeah, you got like, to start by swinging big. Or if you're going to pick a fight with the the Western canon, right? You know, you it's you know you you go after you go after the yeah. kind of the bosses first. Yeah, don't right? go after Alexander Pope. You know, yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah. to go after Shakespeare and Homer. No, no mm. offense to the Pope fans. And to kind of paraphrase a character from The Wire, you know, if you go after the king, you better right. not. You better miss. not miss. Yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> and, right. And that, but like, there's something I think extraordinarily admirable about. Mm. Joyce kind of essentially taking, taking setting on. this out, taking them yeah. on from the very first yeah. chapter. Like, yeah. you know, he is, yeah. you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of writers believe themselves to be great, but sort of publicly would sort of diminish yeah. their their sort of appreciation of themselves or their 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 intelligence. Joyce has none of that. Like he he knows what he's doing with he, this. He knows and yet I think he's aware of of the boldness of his sure. his yeah, challenge. Yeah. And so this comes on um my page twenty. This isn't. This is in the modern classics, Penguin edition. So hopefully, um, you have a similar page. Sponsored proudly by Penguin Classics, the only <laughs> edition available. Continue, please, Alice. <laughs> so, um, I believe this is the first time Hamlet comes up. Somebody tell me if this is not the case. But um, uh, Haynes is asking Stephen. Mm. He says directly. I mean, using him by name. What is your idea of Hamlet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, no, no, Buck Mulligan shouted in pain. I'm not equal to Thomas Aquinas and the 55 reasons he has made to prop it up. Wait till I have a few pints in me first. You know, he's uh -huh. saying, I'm going to do this, but maybe I need to be a little bit drunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or maybe you need to buy me a drink. <laughs> no, because this, this goes back to, you know, Stephen thinking that the whole problem with Irish art is that they're in a position of, of servitude. 
You know, they've been colonized, yes. literally colonized. Yes. It's and, really important to and, remember. And this is, I mean, this is something critical is that Haynes is the, he represents the kind of well-meaning English, oh, history is to blame. You know, mm. I'm, I'm on your side. Mm. Sorry we, you know, <laughs> sorry uh, we burned down your country. Sorry we like, colonized you. Sorry we colonized you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, and, and, and Stephen uses this, this image of the cracked mirror, uh, of mm. the cracked uh, looking glass mm. of a servant, which is Oscar Wilde's metaphor. It actually referred mm. to Oscar Wilde. Mm. And that, that this is the position of an Irish artist, right? Mm. Not only do we uh, only uh, poorly represent the, the, the real reality of, of our society through these stylized ways, but we do it in the position of a servant mm. um, that, you know, um, Ireland, as it's sometimes said, is was the only country in Europe that had two capitals and neither of which was actually in the country, that, that London and Rome were effectively mm. because of the British Empire and the Catholic Church. Mm. And so, you know, you have that, that dynamic of the usurper of, of, the, of the colonizer um, and and Hamlet's a, a a way of dealing with that because Hamlet is also someone who's been thrust out of his of his position, someone who um, is a disturbed young man. The way Stephen yeah. is a, like a, a very disturbed young guy with a terribly problematic family life, mm-hmm. and so we get we get into Stephen's head right away through mm-hmm. the this accusation from Buck that that you know his aunt thinks that Stephen killed his mother. Uh, he calls him kinch, which is a great uh, word that has this double meaning from kinchin uh, in Gaelic, which means child, but also the sound of a, of, of a knife. Mm-hmm. So it, the, the knife blade, someone who's cutting through um, the, the you know, illusions and, and pretensions. Uh, that's Stephen's nickname. And, uh, and Stephen is this kind of Hamlet figure who has seen a ghost, in this case, mm-hmm. the ghost of his mother. Mm-hmm. Hamlet sees the ghost of his father on the tower mm-hmm. and the father telling him that he's been murdered and that Hamlet has to avenge him. And, and Stephen is haunted by the fact that his mother, uh, a devout Catholic, asked for Stephen to pray for her as she was dying in a, in a just horrific, uh, dying a horrific death of cancer. Um, and Stephen couldn't and wouldn't do it in the same way that Joyce couldn't and wouldn't um, do, uh, pretend to be pious uh, in front of his own dying mother. Mm-hmm. And um, and so this is a trauma and Stephen is a fresh trauma. Mm-hmm. His mother has died and his mother has died thinking that he's going to hell. Mm-hmm. I, I think we see this assault on um, Shakespeare and Hamlet also just and, and on the in the Anglo-Saxon tradition just on the level of language too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so uh, Lex mentioned earlier that what's so striking about and this is what really struck me um, <laughs> as a long-time listener, first-time caller, <laughs> um, is just his 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 irreverence and insolence and, and playfulness yeah. with the English language. And I just and this is something that I would kind of say to people who are who are coming into this for the first time just enjoy the language because mm-hmm. there is so much to enjoy and and take out a pen and highlight the words that you're seeing for the first time you know it's it, what it's so what is so fantastic about this text is not only the the interaction of words but also that just the novelty of words mm-hmm. um and i i just re- i wrote out two of my fi- kind of favorite phrases one is on page nine he writes um Wave white wedded words shimmering on the dim tide. This is I wrote the same one. Did you? Wave white wedded words so, shimmering on the dim yeah. tide. Yeah. <laughs> and on page thirty-five, garish sunshine bleaching the honey of his of his ill-dyed head. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I just wanted to also add this quote that I, I kind of discovered in, in my brief research. I'm not really allowed to do much research because Lex is doing all of the research for me. Um, this is this is a yeah. That's why I'm not doing much research either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Says the podcast producer, twiddling in his dials. Yeah. Um, this is this is a quote from the French poet Jean Tardieu, 
And he said that poetry is um, when one word meets another one for the first time. Mm. And I think that's a beautiful idea in itself. But that is, for me, what was so striking also about opening up this book is is Joyce putting words together and, and, and having them meet for the first time. Yeah, it's right. lovely. Um, just picking up on that point of the, the irreverence, one thing that is striking, I think, from the, the very start, uh, and particularly as these, these, these three sections go on, is the kind of the, um, I, I suppose the kind of the, the bodily um, mm. existence mm -hmm, in in mm -hmm, Ulysses, mm -hmm. like whether that's towards the end of um, of Proteus, which is such a, such a small thing, um, but it's, it's it's Stephen. He picks his nose. Picks his nose and leaves a bit of snot on mm. the on the rock. Now this is this is something which I'm sure we'll come back to of Joyce's kind of the sense of kind of this great leveling in mm -hmm. a way, like it's mm -hmm. a, it's it's a leveling of cultures. You know, he's putting. Mm. Uh, the the Homeric epics on the sort of on the same mm. cultural level as sort of the Bloom's um, ad, ad, ad you know newspaper advertisements. Mm -hmm. There's also this sense of you know what you can and can't talk about mm -hmm. in in literature. The, the kind of bodily functions mm -hmm. um, are something which uh, I think get scant treatment, or at least George's mm. jo time particularly got scant treatment mm. in so-called high literature, and you get a sense. From these very first chapters, if this book is going to encompass the world, the universe, mm. then you know part everything's got to be in it. Everything's got to be in it, and you quickly start to realize that everything is in it. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, Agenbite of Inuit. So before we leave uh, episode one, a couple of little things to notice. So this phrase Agenbite of Inuit, it it's um, kind of an Anglo-Saxon rendering of the idea of a guilty conscience. So Stephen is trying to free himself from the guilty conscience of his mother dying, thinking that Stephen had uh, betrayed her or had, had left the faith, of, you know, of years of, of priest teachers telling him he was going to hell for his desires, um, but also of, of feeling alienated from his family. He has left, he's the oldest brother, and he has younger sisters um, who are essentially living in poverty. Mm -hmm. And so you'll see Dilly, well, one of his sisters who picks up the, he has one little pence and gets a, a coverless French primer because she wants to learn French, one of the most touching moments in, in Ulysses. And Stephen, he's the big brother and he's not doing anything mm -hmm. to help his little sisters who are in poverty. So Stephen has a guilty conscience. Um, another one or two little things, um, uh, Buck Mulligan reports of his friend Alec Bannon, who's in uh, a couple of towns away in, in Mullingar, uh, who has a new uh, flirtatious love interest who he calls Photo Girl. And we later learn this Photo Girl, who is referred to in this uh, in this first episode, is not, no, no one else but the daughter of Leopold Bloom, Millie Bloom. Um, and finally, Stephen does at the end say, announce to himself, I will not sleep here tonight. Home also, I cannot go. Mm -hmm. um, and so, no, thus, no, no stos for him. No, no stos. <laughs> no stos, heteros. Um, so he's, he's going out into his wandering, uh, determined never to come back. Should we, should we move to Nestor? Let's yeah. Move to Nestor. Um, one of the so Nestor, we see Stephen uh, at his job. One of the only times in the entire novel we see anyone doing any work um, all day long. Uh, there's a lot of talking, a lot of drinking, not a whole lot of working portrayed in this in this novel. We have the nurse uh, helping at the birth of uh, Mrs. Purefoy, and briefly Bloom trying to sell a newspaper ad. But uh, besides that, um, here we have Stephen teaching and um, his he, his day job. 
his day job. And um, because, as we know, his heart really isn't in it. But um, he is actually a pretty darn good teacher mm-hmm. uh, in a funny way. Um, Declan Kybert, who we, we referred to before, um, who, if you're listening or if anyone knows him is listening, is, is a wonderful book. He wrote Ulysses and Us, and he's uh, on YouTube at a couple of places. Um, and Declan Kybert writes, um, Stephen's educational theory is rather akin to Joyce's. Teachers should ask questions, open children to ancient legends, ask them to contemplate the faraway and the remote as children naturally want to do. Democracy should educate and education should democratize. One of the best sentences I've read in a long time. Thank you, Declan Kybert. And so, Stephen, we, we see him asking quizzes about, in this case, ancient history, mm. the, the Greek uh, general Pyrrhus, from which we get the mm. idea of a Pyrrhic mm. victory, a victory mm. that costs you more than a defeat might have. Mm. Um, and the students kind of fumble it. And one of the students says, um, you know, Stephen asks, uh, what was the end of Pyrrhus? How did Pyrrhus die? End of Pyrrhus, sir? Uh, I know, sir. Ask me. Wait, you, Armstrong, do you know anything about it? And uh, he clearly has no idea. He's totally lost, as we often are in school. Pyrrhus, sir. Pyrrhus, uh, a pier. <laughs> Tell me now, what's a pier? A pier, uh, a thing out in the waves, a kind of bridge. Now, most teachers would be like, no, wrong, next. Mm-hmm. At least in, in France, that's what teachers would usually say. Um, but Stephen kind <laughs> of... Hello to all our French listeners. Yeah, Stephen kind of, he does the yes and, right? Uh-huh. He kind of he kind of rolls with it. Oh, yeah, Kingston Pier, Stephen said. Yes, a disappointed bridge. Uh-huh. And he makes a great kind of bon mot out of this mm-hmm. idea of, of um, Pyrrhus the peer. And so he, he is sort of open to his students mm-hmm. um, in a way that most teachers aren't. And, and but also, I think the, one of the reasons mm-hmm. that he's open to this particular student at this particular time is that he is, this student is being mocked by the others mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. his supposedly stupid answer. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the first moment where you really get a sense of the depths of Stephen's compassion, actually, mm-hmm. is that like he is he, he recognizes immediately the probably from personal experience, the the upset and the trauma yeah. that is what it's like to be bullied. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he and he sort of he turns it around. He upsets the mm-hmm. apple cart and he turns mm-hmm. it back on the um, on the tormentors. And I think that's yeah, that's a first moment of, um, you know, contrasting, I suppose, with the idea you perhaps get of Stephen if you listen to Buck in Telemachus of being somebody who is maybe didn't have the compassion mm. to lie to his mother on her deathbed, although we could probably debate about what the most compassionate Yeah, whether, whether Stephen should have prayed or not. And, yeah, and, yeah. and of course, for Joyce, this is a redemptive moment because he's delighting uh, through Stephen in, in in the joy and the playfulness of language, right? Of oh, yeah, course, yeah. he's going to... This this is a kind of a meta Joyce moment. Yeah. It's a gag as well. That's mm. the thing, like the disappointed mm. bridge. I mean, it's it's... It's not. It's not the best joke out there, but it's. I don't know. It's a like, bomb. It's, 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 it's kind of reassuring, right? When you, um, when you're again, as, as you talked about earlier, Alice, like the sort of the intimidation of these, you know, great books, and mm. then finding, okay, the author is willing to be playful with us. You know, he is going to, he's going to to to, to sort of amuse us in these in these in these ways. Yeah. No, and I, and I think well to, to your point about the body, I think it's a really important point, and it, it picks up a point that. Um, I mean, again and again, we come back to Declan Kibbard, and this is in the introduction again, but it's not only um, kind of revealing the innards of the human body, but it's also in this in this novel, Joyce is revealing the innards of the novel itself. Hmm. Um, this is Gibbard again. <laughs> he defines a new critic. <laughs> he writes, The novel has always been an artifact, and in that sense, a sham, 
but it is now self-evidently so. Mm. And the novelist is pleased to point to the nuts and bolts in the contraption rather than use art to conceal art as in the past. And that's it. And then you're going to see, like, as as the book goes on, the sort of the use Mm. of parody and pastiche, Mm. the amount Mm. of parody and pastiche of the Mm. novel, of different Mm. styles, of different means of expression Mm. contained in this book is actually quite striking Mm. for for something that is also in so many ways completely new. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's true, but I think you could take another way too, Adam. I think I think um, pointing at the nuts and bolts, you know, it's it's pointing and laughing, Mm -hmm. but it's also pointing and saying this is worth something. Mm. Right. Sure, yeah, yeah. And and I think this is what also I, I get from from Kybert's um, writing about Ulysses is elevating the everyday. Right. That that we don't have to take get in a in a in a, in a ship and cross oceans um, to encounter heroism and, and, and live a worthy life. We can just we can just pick our nose. We can just pick our nose yeah, yeah. and 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 think, you know, crazy thoughts about Aristotle, which 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 begin here. But, um, the you know, I think. Uh, I think there's a sense which he also values things that hadn't been valued before yeah. mm-hmm. um, and says, mm-hmm. yeah, we can look at this. We can talk about, you know, going out to an outhouse and um, and, and things that 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 literature, high literature has never honored or never vowed or never even seen and acknowledged. It's seeing mm-hmm. the things, mm-hmm. giving a voice to the voiceless mm-hmm. parts of our of our lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, in a, it, maybe that sounds kind of serious, but but I think he's laughing, but he also I think thinks these things are, are worthwhile. Absolutely, mm. and I and I think, and I'm, I'm I'm sure we'll come back to this, uh, particularly when we we come, you know, we talk more about Bloom. But, um, you know, what it what is the what is the Odyssey other than you know just one guy trying to get home, getting trying to get mm. home, and what is mm. Bloom's journey except one guy trying, trying to, get, to home. get home? Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons. I mean, particularly for me, um, why the Odyssey speaks t- to me more and more. Mm. as I've kind of reached certain turning points in my life mm. is that I think particularly as a as a younger person it's you know life and storytelling is a lot about kind of striking out mm. about so you know that's kind of your Iliad right it's going mm. off it's going mm. to war it's having these adventures and then there does come a turning point and mm. what exactly marks that turning point will be different for different mm. people but when something about you wants to return home oh. I, I think that this discussion is really useful because I think, um, you know, we, we talked about the kind of golden gates of this book and and I think it will get, I mean, I've already looked forward a bit and, and accidentally read on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I think formally it will become more challenging, certainly so stylistically it will come more challenging and holding on to these more human parts of it will be really totally. important because they're yeah. going to they're gonna carry us through mm-hmm. and they'll carry you through so find your character find your cause as it mm. were and hold on to it and track it so but i think i think the idea that that yes as you say alice that that um we all see our own causes right in the causes that that stephen and bloom and molly mm. are are trying to live for and all of it you know all these different characters dilly Dedalus, um mm. you know buck mulligan uh maybe uh and that it doesn't matter if if you win and, and get the prize and mm. get the you know kind of heroic reward um you're still worth something you know? yeah and actually this this goes back to the point that i made at the beginning about how does this book hold up a mirror to our moment well how does this book hold up a mirror to my life and my mm. experience this you this book seems to me is uniquely positioned to do that mm. because it is such a portrait of the everyday life and so again under un, underline things and keep track of what's drawing your attention because 
as as a as a teacher once told me a, reading a book in its entirety like this is like chewing on a bone mm-hmm. and once you figure out what your bone is or maybe it's two bones but it won't be everything it certainly won't be figure out what your bone is and then spend the rest of your experience of reading the book for the first time or the tenth time chewing on this particular bone for lex it's democracy (laughs) (laughs) you put me in mind of um something another great losing cause at the moment (laughs) (laughs) the bone um, of democracy (laughs) something that carl jung um, wrote about about the i ching actually which is that this book you know he not it was not necessarily that this book had predictive powers but there was something about the way it was constructed that an engagement with it would kind of unlock mm. certain things in the reader's psyche. <laughs> and I think, you know, and this isn't specific to mm. Ulysses, I think mm. it's mm. specific to all great literature, mm. is that they, they work on you, they mm. work on your they psyche on you. in that way, right? Mm. They, yeah. they, they unlock things, they unpick things. And, you know, the, their magic, if you like, is in the communion mm. that they have, in the possibilities they offer to a to sort of to the greatest numbers such, of readers s- in a way. such a lovely idea and certainly as we're drawn in formally to the to the center of this book or the the, the downward mobility <laughs> of the form as the form basically um becomes undone i imagine mm-hmm. um you know we should all just let ourselves be taken with it mm. and it's, don't hold don't don't resist it i, I th- yeah i think i think i think that's absolutely that's absolutely mm. right and and but it only works on you if you believe it. If you mm. believe that that Stephen and and Bloom seem real to you, and this is what's so astounding about Ulysses is that I mean Stephen, I I, I think is kind of a pain in the ass in some ways, but he's <laughs> an absolute genius. He's vastly read, um, and he has an unbelievably rich, uh, unexpected um, inner life that mm. you can really see the world um, in his eyes in a way that I don't think you can with any other character. Before. And that inner life, to, to move on to our third section, mm. is probably the the first time we get a real yes. sort of sustained sense of it yes. mm. is in, in Proteus. Behind behind the eyeballs, the ineluctable modality of the visible. So who looked at, who out there looked at those words and was like, what the heck? What? <laughs> and actually, to be honest, so so Joyce famously... Yeah, exactly. I thought, oh, this, this had been so fun. Until now. <laughs> <laughs> now, Stephen, why are you making my life so miserable with with Latin and, and Dante? This has been so quote. easy. Yeah. Um, so Joyce famously gave Nora Ulysses, and um, she uh, read twenty seven pages of it and and gave it back to him. Actually, g- gave away uh, her her copy that had been inscribed to her by the author. Uh, apparently, that's that's. Uh, uh, you know, she loved James Joyce, but didn't necessarily need to read all of his. Having maybe spending all of her life with him, didn't need to read eight hundred pages. Or in the case of my mother, gets to this third section and throws the book against the wall. <laughs> well, and that's, I mean, this is it to to what you know to those of us who have tried to make our way through Proust. You know, it's like how many dozens of pages can this little boy be wanting his mother to hug him? I, I think in a sense, it's, boys, you're being hazed. boys and their mothers. Boys and their mothers. <laughs> Episode three of Ulysses is yes, it's a little bit of a hazing, but you know, pick up your companion book whatever it is if it's the Hastings if it's Blamiers if it's Gifford um, you know or, or surf the if it's us if it's us, if it's, us <laughs> uh, it's, it's actually kind of a fascinating walk on the beach this is just a walk on the beach mm. um, the intellectual modality of the visible right intellectual means inevitable or irresistible eluctare uh, means to struggle in, in, in Latin uh, you can't struggle against the fact that the world 
always presents itself to you through your eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Stephen's trying to see, he's trying to kind of play a little bit with this idea of how um, you know what's out there in the world. And can you have a way of seeing that doesn't require this mode of an object next to another object mm-hmm. um, or an object after uh, another object, the Nieben, mm. the Nibenacht uh, and the and the Nibenander. I can't remember the German, but uh, it's just the German. No, no, can we? Yeah, no, can we? It's the German for one thing next to another and one thing after another, mm. and and mm. and so he's. It, this whole chapter is him experiment playing with that. Mm. What can I see if I close my eyes? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. What can we see when we close our eyes? But there's also, I mean, there's a lot of fun stuff in there as well. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to. To bring up is um, Stephen as who is you know he is the the artist as a young man mm. essentially that we left at the end of Portrait mm. and we do get an insight into some of his kind of uh, failed artistic projects and yes I mean particularly the, yes. the the, um, letters. the letters book yeah. which is it's just so wonderful the letters the way the way it's described and the way it's written um, what page are we on so now? we're on page fifty here um, yeah, do, do a paragraph. Yeah, let's do this. Reading two pages apiece. There we go. Reading two pages apiece of seven books every night, eh? I was young. You bowed to yourself in the mirror, stepping forward to applause earnestly, striking face. Hooray for the goddamned idiot. Hooray. No one saw. Tell no one. Books you were going to write with letters for titles. Mm. Have you read his F? Oh, yes, but I prefer Q. Yes, but W is wonderful. Oh, oh yes. yes. W. 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 <laughs> Remember your epiphanies on green oval leaves. Deeply deep copies to be sent if you mm. died to all the great libraries of the world, <laughs> including Alexandria. OK, so I'm going to pause there. But for me, like two things came to mind. One, I guess, well, I don't know, probably both quite low art in a way. But it reminded me, A, of the um, of the two Runnies sketch, um, F-U-N-E-X, which will only mean something to uh, British Brits of a certain age. Of a certain age. Of a certain age. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the consistent <laughs> reminder of your youth, Alice. Um, a few months and, before TikTok. And <laughs> the other one was maybe slightly higher, although this might be disputed, is Marcel Duchamp with the um, uh, his portrait of the Mona Lisa and El Asho Oku. Oh, right. Uh, yes, so yes, the letters yes, of, of um, which, you know, is essentially a pun in French, you know, which, which you have the letters L-H-O-O-Q. Which went, Duchamp on toilets anyway. I mean, well, yeah, or in, or in this case, which, you know, if you say it with the French pronunciation of the letters, you get, essentially get him saying that she's horny. Right. Um, but it's just that sort of that playing, that punning with with letters and mm. it comes back to that thing we talked about with with uh, Joyce's playfulness right mm. like with the with the the joke about the pier with that sort of and and the, the naval court so let's not forget I, one of the one of the, the best little moments is Stephen um, sees these two midwives um, Florence uh, Florence McCabe um, and her friend um, who are who have just come back from helping someone be born presumably and thinks about the naval court so this is kind of a thing we don't uh, think about it every day, but that these midwives are carrying around sort of the 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 uh, uh, what what remains of the birth, and and he thinks, well, actually, we're all connected through navel cords, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, and he p- thinks of like navel cords as like this this genealogical uh, telephone system where you can you can call up Adam and Eve, uh, and he says, uh, gaze in your omphalos, which is Greek for your your belly button. Hello, Kinch here. Put me on to Edenville. Aleph, Aleph, <laughs> not not one. Um, and so, I mean, that's that's pretty funny, I think. <laughs> and also, just as an aside, that's not the first occurrence of omphalos in this book. Mm-hmm. Sort of, I think if I like 
Buck Mulligan refers to the Marte ta- Martello Tower as yes, as the Omphalos, which means mm. kind of the the, the the center of the world, and yeah, he wants yeah, to make yeah. Ireland the center of the world. He mm. also says Epi Onapaponton on the wine dark sea, mm. and I, mm. I and I also uh, heard in one of these one of these videos an Irish person say, well, they, this Buck Mulligan calls the sea not green. It's not it's not it's not green. Mm. This this you know on, on Sandy Mount Cove, and of course, well, Mediterranean isn't wine dark either. Oh. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. so there's this funny way where she's mm. playing with with the color of um, mm-hmm. of of the ocean. Mm. One little thing that I would like to just flag up, um, which is probably only of interest to me, but I'm going to bring it in anyway. It's on page 51, the reference to Leo Taxil, um, and this is somebody who um, I was kind of vaguely obsessed with for several years, who was a French writer and, for want of a better word, prankster. Um, so the book that's referenced is La Vie de Jesus, which was um, Taxil. Basically, he set himself up against both the Catholic Church and the Freemasons. Um, and so he he wrote several books. So um, he wrote La Vie de Jesus. He wrote um, also, um, he created this character called Diana Vaughan, who was essentially um, an American who uh, he claimed had communed with, with Satan. Um, and he used these, basically he constructed these these um, fake narratives, these fake exposés of both the Catholic Church and the the Freemasons to set the two uh, institutions off against each other. Um, I don't have anything more to say about the particular relevance of that to this book, (laughs) but I just thought I was really struck by by the presence of Taxil, who is Mm. broadly forgotten. Mm. I mean, unless you're unless you you dive down a particular Freemason, mm. Catholic Church, or in my case, prankster, rabbit hole, no, but th- this, uh, you're not going to come across it. This is the point, and I think this is what is such a challenge when the for the first time that you're reading this, is there are so many moments like that mm-hmm. where you could fall down the rabbit hole, and oh, whether, yeah, yeah. whether or not you choose to is your choice, and uh-huh. maybe you come round to this particular rabbit hole. I know this, uh, as my name is Alice, um, <laughs> the first time, or the second time, or the third time, um, but it, I, I I think for the first stage, it's not actually possible to fall down mm-hmm. all the rabbit no. holes. I, I think actually probably people who were born after 1990, this is more intuitive, right? Um, Falling that, down rabbit holes? No, click, clicking on links. Clicking right? On this links. is the equivalent, right? Mm. You know, you see a reference you and, and mm. now you what do you do? You you Google it, you, you, right. you, wiki, you click right. on a link. Right. And Joyce is, Joyce is, 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 is yeah. creating exactly the same reading experience. Mm. Mm. Right, where mm. you can you can dive into these mm. other little worlds, mm. you can connect to it through mm. through the links that he sets up. Mm. Now, before we finish, I do just want to um, talk a little bit about That's the readers point. we've got lined up for these three mm. episodes. So, um, Telemachus, which is going to be the first episode, which is published in a couple of days. If you're listening to this, the day it's gone out, the second of February, so the centenary day itself, uh, is Will Self. Now. Uh, the reason there were several reasons we asked Will to read um, Telemachus. He he wanted to do a big chunk, and it's rare when you're when you're writing to people asking them to <laughs> to Just record a you. section yeah. uh, that they they say yeah give me loads and Will did that so um, thank you Will thank you Will first of all Will is also he's kind of one of the torchbearers for modernism I mean mm-hmm. with his trilogy. Um, uh, umbrella, shark, and phone. I mean, he was writing very much, very consciously situating himself in the tradition mm. of of Joyce and, and other modernist writers. Also a wonderful performer. And I think one of the things that is um, mm. important about Ulysses when reading it for the first time or second or third or however many times is to build up a momentum when mm. you start. Mm. Um, and I think having somebody who reads 
as well and as excitingly as mm. well um, is perfect for um, for Telemachus. Then moving on to uh, to Nesta, our second reader is another stalwart, a dear friend of Shakespeare and Company's Jeanette Winterson, and giving Jeanette that scene in the classroom sort of harks back a little bit to what we were talking about about the sort of the compassionate teacher. Mm. I mean, you know, Stephen connecting with his pupils. Like if you've ever seen Jeanette read, um, and she's Marvelous read regularly at the books, mm. it's it's wonderful. There is there is something so charismatic but also so compassionate there's this real connection mm. with the audience oh, she takes her time too she's a marvelous yeah the pacing of it which is... and, and so giving giving that section to Jeanette and 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 hearing the way she reads it it just um feels very fitting then we move into the kind of the stuffy confines of um of Mr Deasy's office and for that we have our first Irish reader the brilliant comic novelist uh Paul Murray mm. um and you know and one of the reasons uh we chose this piece for Paul was because, um, you know, as I say, as a comic novelist, Mr. Deasy is a bit of an absurd character. Like, so when he goes into the whole rant about, um, about the English paying their debts and paying their way, uh, we needed somebody who could, uh, who could embody that. And Paul does it so, so wonderfully. Mm. Finally, moving on to, um, on to Proteus. Um, and as we said, this is a section of kind of internal monologue on interiority where you really get the kind of, get the voice, uh, the inner voice of mm. Stephen. And we thought it would be quite fun to play with this a little bit. So our first reader is Aishan Hutchinson, um, the Jamaican poet. And Aishan is an incredible reader. He's read a few times at the bookstore. Um, and one of the times after a previous reading, he and I were sitting on the, the terrace of the Shakespeare and Company Cafe and I was rabbiting on about something or other and he got distracted. And what he got distracted by, there was a young woman reading a volume of Seamus Heaney. And Aishan is a, an enormous admirer of Seamus Heaney. And he leant over and he asked uh, the young woman if he could borrow the book for a moment. And he borrowed it. He found the poem Postscript and he gave uh, a impromptu. sort of an impromptu mm. reading uh, of, 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 this, of, this, of this poem for me and for, for, for this young woman. And hearing Heaney's Irish rhythms trans mogrified I guess into uh, Aishan's Jamaican accent and Jamaican voice was such a transcendent experience and that as soon as I was thinking about it, like who could who could take this this book which is so infused with mm. with Irish rhythms and demonstrate by kind of breaking it open mm. that it is a book of the world and can exist in so many different versions mm. Aishan was 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 the first person that came mm. to mind mm. And then back with back with our second Irish writer, the amazing short story writer and novelist Keelan Hughes, mm. who gives an absolutely exquisite, uh, emotional, very crisp, but also very compassionate reading of um, the second uh, the second part mm. of um, of Proteus. So those are the five readers you've got coming up. So starting every weekday from this coming Wednesday, the 2nd of February, 2022. That's what you've got to look forward to. Um, we will be back in a few weeks' time. We will actually be recording our next episode on the centenary mm. day. Mm. So, um, My birthday. Your, your birthday as well. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> can, we, can, we, can, we, can we clink our glasses and dance? We will have to have cake. <laughs> to, um, to, to Alice and to the centennial. Um... Yeah, so that is um, that is where we are. Uh, final final words, final thoughts, final observations before we 
we set our poor listeners free. <laughs> um, f- find find your companion mm. in this book. It could be someone, uh, a friend. Um, yeah, that's there a, great, are, yeah. There are many, a running partner. There, yeah, a running partner. <laughs> uh, or it could be one of these great companion books and we'll, and we'll mm. link to them. The Blamier's mm. New Bloomsday book, the yep. Ulysses Annotated, Declan Kybert, who we've been throwing flowers at all day. Um, and, <laughs> or Kibber, uh, as I've called him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he appreciates it. We're remixing his, his thing. Um, you know. And of course, Patrick Hastings, former Patrick tumbleweed. Hastings, Find a companion. This is, is such a this is such a great point. I've already reached out to. I'm already kind of encouraging all of my most brilliant friends and family members to join me because I don't feel up for it on my own. I'm so glad to have both of you, but I feel like I need a whole community to to mm-hmm. get me through this. And and you'll be the community listeners. Yes, but, you are in this book club with us. Please, please send us your thoughts and emails and uh, and notes about this. And we can't wait to see what you think. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the readings and we will be back in a couple of weeks time to talk about Calypso. Happy reading. A très bientôt. Thank you for listening to Friends of Shakespeare and Company Read Ulysses. The text was provided by our partners at Penguin Classics, whose cloth-bound centenary edition of Ulysses is available now from your local independent bookshop. You can also order it from our website, shakespeareandcompany.com, and get your copy shipped from Paris, inked with the famous Shakespeare and Company stamp. If you're enjoying these free readings and want to show your support, the best way is to become a subscriber to our author interview podcast on Spotify, Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. In addition to helping fund all the bookshop's non-profit activities, you'll get even more from Kilometre Zero in the form of exclusive bonus episodes recorded in-store and around Paris. Find out more in the episode notes or at shakespeareandcompany.com. Friends of Shakespeare and Company Read Ulysses was conceived and produced at Shakespeare and Company in Paris by me, Adam Biles, in collaboration with our Bloomsday MC, Professor Lex Paulson. Original music is by Alex Fryman, with Flora Hibbard on vocals and production by Adrien Chicot. We'd like to thank all our readers, our partners Hay Festival and Penguin Classics, and you, of course, for listening. Um... Well, it's, it's a pleasure to be here, first of all, um, in some ways because I feel like my education in literature has a Ulysses. Ulysses, <laughs> that's the feminist <laughs> writing of this book right there. Okay. <clears throat>